You can open up, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 3. Um, we have been working through the book of Genesis together as a church. If you're newer here, I haven't been in a while, that's where we're at. And uh, we are looking today at Genesis 3, 16 through 19. And as you're kind of getting yourself situated there, um, by way of introduction, I want to just tell you about a, something that happened to me not too long ago, well, a little while ago now. But I, I will remember having to go to the doctor. Um, I was experiencing some pain uh, in my joints, my knees in particular, and I was trying to get some things figured out. And so I went to the doctor, and they put me through, you know, the whole gamut of tests that they typically do, did the blood work, and ended up running some scans and trying to figure out what's going on. And I remember sitting back with the doctor after having all this work done as he's looking at kind of the results of everything that had come in, and he starts doing, you know, the kind of poking and prodding uh, all over my, my body and different joints that I wasn't overly concerned about. And, uh, and he's asking questions like, well, does, does this hurt? And I was like, oh, like, yeah, sure, a little bit. Well, how about this? I'm like, yeah. Well, does it usually hurt? I said, well, yeah, but it's like, it's like a normal hurt. And he looked at me and he said, what are you talking about? That, that's not normal for that to hurt. And he said to me this, I'll never forget it. He said, he said, you've been living with chronic pain so long, you forgot what it feels like to feel normal. And I think that's in many ways how so many people exist in the world today. They live their lives in a world that is filled with pain and problems, with tragedy and trouble, with difficulty and hardship, but they've been living in it and with it for so long, they begin to think that this is normal. They forget that actually the pain of this world isn't what God originally designed as normal. And the scripture we're going to look at today, this passage actually helps us diagnose what's wrong with us and what's wrong with the world. And it, it then points us toward the healing that is needed for all. This section falls after humanity had sinned against God. They were in the garden. They were deceived by the serpent. And now God speaks to the man and the woman, and he renders judgment upon them. We're going to pick up in verse 16, and here's what it says. Says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." It's interesting just to note that God here does not curse the woman and the man in the same way that he cursed the serpent. He brought curses directly upon the serpent. He has delivered this immediate and prophetic punishment to the serpent who is Satan. 
there will be ongoing enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman that will end in this final climactic battle where the serpent will be crushed. He will be destroyed, defeated. But he turns now to the the first couple, Adam and Eve, and he speaks first to the woman and then to the man. And what we see here is what we all now live in He now describes for us in these judgments life under the curse. This is now, in a sense, the new normal for humanity, but we need to remember as we approach this text, this is not the way it was meant to be. It's not the way it always was. So what we see is that life, in life under the curse, we experience first pain in parenting Again, he's going to first speak directly to the woman, but you'll see there's application that extends not just to the woman, to the man. What impacts her impacts him. In order for us to grasp the the significance of this judgment, we have to remember God's original intent in creation. Remember, as he created man and woman, he actually gave them things to do. He described their roles and responsibilities. And so what we see here is a kind of reversal of the creative design taking place. There are two things that God called the woman to do initially before the fall. The first was to be fruitful and multiply, to to give birth to children, to populate the earth, to raise up generations of human beings who would know God and love God and live in the presence of God. The second was to be a a helpmeet to to Adam, her husband, to to live with him, to work with him, to support him, as the, the Hebrew text says, as a suitable helper. And those two things, I want you to notice this in this text, they're the two things that she was deliberately told to do, created to do. And these are the very two areas that she will receive judgment. The same will follow for the man. He will be judged, so to speak, in his primary roles or relationships. The creation mandate, the calling on humanity, isn't removed by sin. But what we will see is that it is made more difficult to accomplish. Where once it was filled with only joy and ease, where where once there was thriving and flourishing and life, now we will see that everything is flipped upside down. It will still be accomplished in a sense, but it will be filled with much pain, much difficulty, and much death. Like the serpent's punishment, it comes in two parts. Both concern the relationships most dear to her. First, notice this, childbearing will come with increased pain. He says in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And all the women in here who have ever born a child say say amen. I've never born a child, but I've witnessed my wife birth two, and I can tell you just by way of observation, it looked incredibly painful. I mean, so much so that I almost passed out twice. It's really embarrassing when the nurses say, ma'am, would you hold your baby so we can tend to your husband? I'm just kidding. That never happened, but it could have. 
But I think we, we read this a particular way. We, we read this as, as simply giving birth and pain being a new part of that experience. And I think that's absolutely true. But the Hebrew language here actually is far more encompassing than that. It's far more expansive than that. The idea is not simply giving birth. It's this whole idea of conception and childbearing and child rearing. In other words, it's describing the entire process of, of having to bring life into this world world, where once it was a guarantee and where once it was going to be filled with so much joy, no pain, just joy. Imagine that, parents. Now, listen, the experience is fraught with all kinds of fear and worry and anxiety. Now what we see is that a conception of children will become very difficult in many instances. We're going to see simply in the book of Genesis a number of women who are barren. They cannot have kids. This, this is what it means here. It's a result of the fall. Some will give birth in much pain and we'll even see one of the patriarch's wives who gives birth to a child and dies as a result. This is what it's talking about. But it's, it's even broader than that. It, it could also include this idea of raising children. Again, it, this is all encompassing experience. And if you've ever raised a, a child before, or you're even in the process, you know this it's hard. And as, as much as there's so much joy, right, in raising kids and holding a precious child in your arm, one of the things you, you see so quickly is that it's, it's not only hard, it's also often very painful. The pain of a parent who has to watch their kids suffer with a terminal illness, who, who are raising a child who's maybe born with some kind of a physical or mental disability, the pain of watching a, a child be tragically injured in an accident, the pain of a parent watching a child whose life is taken far too early, the pain of a parent, listen, it goes beyond the physical, who watches their child not only rebel against them and their, their loving care of their child, but watches their child turn their back on the Lord and resist Him with all of their strength. I mean, there are so so many heartbreaking realities of raising children. Yes, there is great joy, and I'm not trying to minimize that, but what we need to see from this text is that, listen, at one point, there was only supposed to be joy. But now, there is great pain. Second, in, in life under the curse, we experience conflict in marriage. It's not just the relationship with children that's affected. It is the relationship with the spouse. The second relationship, but the most important relationship. And notice what it says, the second half here of verse 16. It says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, th there's a lot of debate in this passage, or over this passage, I should say, about what this actually means. And it comes down to understanding this word desire. You see, this word desire is actually used here and only two other places in the Hebrew Bible. It's used once in Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, which describes desire for a spouse in a positive way, a romantic desire. In fact, let me just read to you what it says in Song of Solomon 7:10. It says, I am my beloved's, my, and his desire is for me. 
This has caused some interpreters to read this passage kind of like this. Um, it's, It's as if the woman will experience, knowingly experience pain in the childbearing and rearing process, and yet even in spite of that, she will still desire her husband and will still desire to bring life into this world, even though it's going to be hard. That's a possible rendering of this passage. But I don't think that's the best rendering of this passage. I think this is intended to be understood. Remember, in the context of judgment, it's intended to be understood as a negative. And so I think the the best way to read this is is this sense that she will desire something that was not normal. Remember, there's a reversal taking place in her role and her responsibility. So where once she gladly came alongside her husband as his helpmeet and submitted to his headship in the relationship, and they worked together as a team, now there's going to be this desire to not fill that role, to resist kind of being molded into that shape and instead to fight against it. Let me tell you why I think this is the more compelling argument. One, the context of judgment, I think, is very clear. The second reason is because we, we see the words a judgment and, or excuse me, desire and rule just a short uh, few verses later in chapter 4, verse 7. Now, there's some helpful principles in interpreting Scripture. Let me give you one. Um, It's possible to look up a word in a a lexicon or a dictionary and and read a whole bunch of different meanings of the word. And a lot of kind of people do this. Preachers often do this. They'll pick the word they think will preach the best. This one sounds really good. I like the way this one sounds. That's never the way you're supposed to interpret the Scripture, okay? Words are simply not chosen because of a list of meanings. The context must determine the usage. So here's how you do that in this instance. The question you need to ask is this. Does this author use this word at all in his writings? The answer here is yes. Moses uses not only this word desire, but the same word rule in conjunction in chapter 4, verse 7. The other thing to keep in mind is this. Genesis is broken down into sections, okay? Uh, Little units of thought. And in the Hebrew, if you were to read a Hebrew Bible, these are actually designated by Moses with what's called a toledot. And I only say that to tell you that that Moses has sectioned off chapter 2 to chapter 4 as one unit of thought, okay? So, in other words, he's intending for us to read chapter 4 with chapter 3 and to see a very tight connection between the two. So, I think chapter 4 verse 7 actually becomes the interpretive key, and I want to remind you of what it says there. There, it's Cain who's about to kill his brother Abel, and listen to what it says. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this language, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And I can tell you this, sin's desire is not romantic. It is not a positive desire 
And the issue that God is kind of putting on full display there is like, listen, sin is coming for you. It's wanting to control you. It's wanting to rule you. It's wanting to dominate you, but you must rule over it. That's exactly, I think, what's being depicted here. Rather than work together in their proper roles, wives will strive to usurp their husband's God-given headship. What we find here is that marriage becomes a battlefield over who will control the relationship. And I just want to say this, that this is not just an indictment against what women will do. What we will find is a command, in a sense, or a description of what men will do. They will, but he will rule over you. I think that's just a description saying, listen, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so there's going to be this ongoing conflict where he's going to kind of battle you for, for a headship in the home. And here's what I want to say. This is not licensed for men to dominate women. See, it can go two ways here. Women can wrongfully, sinfully try to usurp their husband's authority in the home, but men then can swing the pendulum to the other side and say, I'm going to seize authority. I'm going to control you. I'm going to dominate you. And you know what we find in the New Testament? We find Paul saying things like this in Colossians 3, 19. Men, this is a great verse for you to jot down. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why does he have to say that? Because that's the natural tendency of the sinful heart, isn't it? To not lead lovingly. Ephesians chapter 5, the paradigm for, for the husband in the marriage relationship. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Well, what does that look like? Not, not domineering, not abusive kind of male authoritarianism, but instead washing her with the water of the word, nourishing her, cherishing her, loving her. I officiated a wedding yesterday, and I thought about using this passage as the wedding, a devotional. I thought, long and hard. No, I didn't. It was very quick. I was like, no, that's not a good idea. I mean, can you, can you, <laughs> but I did think, I did think this might be a good idea, that, you know, at the end of the wedding, you, you pronounce, you know, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and you have somebody ring a bell and say, okay, fight. You know, like, <laughs> like, not right now. Wait for the honeymoon. <laughs> you see, this, this fits, doesn't it, with the common human experience. When sin affects women in the marriage relationship, it's not manifested in their desire for romance, but in their desire for dominance. When sin affects men in the marriage relationship, it does the same. They desire control to lead in sinful ways. And in contrast, to their proper positions and roles. One author said this, these words mark the beginning of the battle of the sexes. The rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle, tyranny, and domination. You say, well, why is it used in a positive sense in, in Song of Solomon chapter 7? Here, here's, this, is, this is great, by the way. Song of Solomon has, I think, some layered meanings to it. But, but I, if you ever read through Song of Solomon, it's this beautiful display of a love between a husband and a wife. And I won't get into all the details, but, but, but I want you to just recall the setting that it takes place in. Anybody remember? A garden. 
I think what the author is doing there is, in a sense, he's kind of giving a nod back to the Garden of Eden. And he's saying, this is what love is supposed to look like. This is what it was designed to look like. This is what you must now fight for because it's now not going to come naturally to you in this new fallen condition. Life under the curse has destroyed all of this. It's made it so hard, and now we resist doing the natural thing we were created to do, and the new natural thing, the new normal thing, is the very thing we shouldn't be doing. Sin generally takes what God has created good and flips it on its head. It's a reversal of God's design. Uh, Augustine, the church father, he set out to discover why it is that most people are so discontent in life. And his conclusion was that for most of us, our lives, he said, are out of order. He, He said it like this, we have disordered loves. What he means by that is we have disordered desires. This is now the reality of the fallen human nature. All of us now have distorted desires. The things we often desire are not in accord with truth and what God designed us to desire. Sin has corrupted all of that. But it is, it is the new normal in a fallen world. Next, in life under the curse, we experience toil in work. He turns now and directs his focus to uh, men Adam in particular in this context, and again, he's going to hit Adam in two ways, and he's going to hit him in his primary roles, primary responsibilities, primary relationships, and so while the the wife, her primary duty is to give birth and, and generally speaking, to raise the children, the husband is going to have to protect, protect and provide for his family. And again, just this is so crazy to think about, at one time, every part of work was awesome, okay? Adam would wake up every morning, chipper, can't wait to go to work. And every part of work was easy, pain-free, enjoyable. All his co-workers respected him because there were none yet. (laughs) They're all going to be his kids. But now, look, look at what happens to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, first of all, that is a massive indictment on Adam's role and responsibility to lead his wife. Remember, where was Adam when Eve took the fruit and ate? The text tells us he was right there watching. Adam's responsibility was to jump in to grab the serpent, chuck it out of the garden, and protect his wife from evil. That was his job. To listen to the voice of God, not to the voice of Eve, his wife, who had been deceived by this. He watched the whole thing. Listen, obedience always leads to blessing. Sin always leads to suffering. And because of this, says this, of which I command you. Again, remember, see the contrast. You listen to the voice of your wife instead of my voice. You did what you shouldn't have done. Here's the result. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Bread. 
before, just think about the ground in the garden. You go back to chapter 2 and you just read a little bit of what it was like. The ground just was bursting forth with fruit and vegetation and every good thing. And Adam, yes, had to work and keep the garden. But again, everything was just booming and bursting forth in abundance. And now, although it will still produce what is good, it will produce thorns and thistles. They'll they'll grow up faster, and they'll begin to overtake all of the goodness that he's been working so hard to cultivate from the ground. Growing the food necessary for survival will now become a chore. Adam is condemned to live by the sweat of his brow. And although the nature of work itself, some of us need to hear this, is in itself still good and still has meaning, it will be accompanied by pain and weariness. Work is not always fun and fulfilling. I don't care what job you have. It's often very hard and frustrating. That's an important message, I think, for our culture that wants everything to come easy and pain-free. Anytime the job gets hard, you know, anytime, maybe this is some of you, anytime, you know, you're working at a job, anytime it gets a little bit too hard, you just hit the eject button, you get out of there, and you're like, man, I can just, I gotta find something that makes me happy. Good luck. Like, gone are the days, right, where, you know, your grandfather worked the same job for 50 years. Can you imagine asking your grandfather, hey, 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 grandpa, what, how fulfilling was work? He'd look at you with this dumbfounded look on, your fa- on his face. What are you talking about? It was work. It was hard. I did the job. I put time in. I provided for my family. But but now our obsession is this, I just got to find what makes me happy. I got to find what's going to fulfill me. And listen, I'm all for doing a a job that you're suited for and enjoyable. Like, find a good job. Like, we we live in a country and, and a time where that's often possible. But listen, if your sole goal is to find absolute fulfillment, joy, and happiness in your job, you're barking up the wrong tree. Just gonna jump from one thing to the next. Even the most enjoyable and fulfilling jobs come with unforeseen difficulty and hardship. All the earth has been cursed. It's now hard. We sweat it out. We grind it out. Uh, St. Augustine, in his his famous work, The City of God, he wrote it after the, the fall of Rome. In it, he describes what he says is the misery and ills to which the human race is justly exposed through the first sin. What numberless casualties threaten our bodies from without, he says. Listen to what he says. This is the result of the fall. Extremes of heat and cold, storms, floods, inundations, lightning, thunder, hail, earthquakes, houses falling, or from the stumbling or shying or vices of horses, modern-day car crashes, from countless poisons in fruits, water, air, animals, from the painful or even deadly bites of wild animals, what disasters are suffered by those who travel by land or sea, what man can go out of his house without being exposed on all hands to unforeseen accidents, returning home, sound in limb, he slips on his own doorstep, breaks his leg, and never recovers. What can seem safer than a man sitting in his chair? Eli the priest fell from his and broke his neck. He goes on like five times longer than that. I just did like snippets. Welcome to life under the curse. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 8. The earth has been subjected to futility. It's groaning 
It's crying out because it's, it's, it's feeling the effects of the fall and sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Our human nature is broken, yes, but the very nature of the natural world is broken. Finally, in life under the curse, we experience sorrow and death. Verse 19, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man is going to have a a painful life until he dies. The, The anguish of 3.17, right here, the the working of the ground, the toilsome labor that now is going to plague his existence, all of that will be a, a direct result of the reality of death in the new operating system of the universe. Three things to note here quickly. First, a life is filled with pain and sorrow. Secondly, in many respects, it actually grows gradually worse as life goes on. Some of you young people are like, oh, great. (laughs) Third thing is this, that death is inevitable for all. I mean, I I think we understand this in, in, in part, but it's hard to process that death was not supposed to be normal. And in just a couple chapters later, in chapter five, we're going to see a, a genealogy. And it's fascinating. In the genealogy, it just starts listing names and how long people lived. And you want to know how each one ends? And then he died. And so and so lived this many years, and he died. And so and so lived this many years, and he died. And so and so lived this many years, and then he died. He died, he died, he died, he died. You see, what the, the author here, Moses, is saying to us is that death is now the new reality because of sin. This is exactly what God promised would happen. If you eat from the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. And we know that that death is is physical. Yes, that's coming to all of us, but the greater death that took place in the garden was the spiritual death. You see, in a sense, all life apart from God is depicted throughout the Scriptures as a kind of death. So you may be living life now, but but if you're apart from from God, if you don't know Him intimately, if you've never submitted to to Jesus as your Lord and Savior and been restored back to His presence, then in effect, you're living, but you're actually dead. And everything you do only has value for this life. All the accolades, all the success, all the accomplishment, every, every penny you've ever earned, everything you've ever owned, gone in an instant. On the moment that you're lying on your deathbed, if, if by the grace of God you have the chance to even know you're lying on your deathbed, In that moment, you will realize that everything else in this world is utterly worthless if you don't have God. And here, life throughout the Scripture is described as living in the presence of God. 
not in the abundance of your possessions, not even in your relationships that you have in an earthly sense. You know, you're not defined by, by whether you're married or single. You're not defined by whether you have children or not. You're not defined by anything you own. If you, if you rent a house or own a house or you have property, none of that matters. What, what matters most is this. Do you have God? Do you have life in Christ? And that is described as a life that is thriving and flourishing. It's a life that's filled with joy and satisfaction. And you see, post-fall, Adam is going to die. That's what we see here. And it's, and it's kind of given to us in a kind of poetic way. You know, you are dust. And from dust to dust you will return. Remember that Adam was once brought forth from the ground and God breathed the breath of life into him. His very name comes from this idea of the ground. Ground in Hebrew is Adama. From Adama comes Adam, but now, ironically, because of sin, now Adam goes back to Adama, the very ground he's going to work to try to extract life from and sustenance from is the very ground that's going to eventually swallow him up. The death sentence has now fallen over God's creation, and so the, the natural question is we look at a text like this and we think about these, listen, very weighty, heavy realities for our existence and for all of humanity, the natural question is this, well, now what? I mean, how do we respond to this? How do we live life under the curse? How do we live well in life under the curse? And I just want to end by giving you three daily responses. Three daily responses. The first is this, remember the reality of our world. Part of what this text is trying to do is shock you and me out of some kind of fantasy fiction about what the world really is. It's trying to jolt us out of our idealism and bring us into a realism. God's words of judgment, they touch every area of our lives, and they actually explain every difficulty we face. All your problems, all your pain, all your chaos, all the disruption and destruction, they flow directly out of this passage. You know, people ask, what's wrong with the world, right? Sin. Sin is what's wrong with the world. And God has justly brought judgment upon the earth for the sin of humanity. It diagnoses our problem, telling us why everything is upside down, not only around us but within us, why our, our, our desires are disordered, why we experience tension and conflict, why some of us can't have children though we desire to, why uh, some of us have children and desire not to. interesting. The people who are most unhappy in life, I think, are the people who don't know what's wrong or why it's wrong. And they think, listen, that if they can just approach the things in the right way, everything will be perfect. If I can just figure this out, if I can just figure out the key to the good life, if, if I can just make enough money, if I can just get enough possessions, if I can just get the right job, if I can, you know, work less and rest more and go, to on, go on vacations, maybe, you know, that's the key, but that's not the key. Nothing 
will ever be perfect in your life. I'm just gonna, just a healthy dose of realism here. Nothing will ever be perfect in your life, not this side of heaven. So I wanna encourage you to exchange idealism for a realism. Listen, here's what that means. Parenting is hard. Parenting's hard. Marriage is hard. Work is hard. Life is hard. This is life under the curse. This doesn't mean there is no joy in these things. It just means they can't provide you ultimate joy and satisfaction. No relationship is going to give you ultimate joy and satisfaction. If you put all your weight on that, it's going to let you down. No, no amount of work or possessions are going to give you what you think you need and make you happy. It's just going to let you down. Nothing can hold that weight. Nothing in this world you should not expect constant thriving in, in this world under the curse. Instead, you should expect regular difficulty. You should be expecting the word of judgment to result in you experiencing the curse on the land, futility, feelings of frustration, and sometimes chaos. Don't expect Eden, okay? Not yet. Listen, if all your hopes and dreams could be fulfilled in this world, there would be no need for another world. But listen, the fact that they can't be fulfilled in this world means this. You were made for another world. Set your mind there. Secondly, resist the results of the curse. You say, so what do we do? Like, do we just like, okay, <laughs> just give in. Here's just life. It's, it's all downhill from here. Do we just resign ourselves to a life of futility and meaninglessness? The scriptures say No. That is not the answer. In fact, the call is to resist the results of the curse. We can actually fight back against the effects of the fall. Though sin has us in a vice grip, we don't simply willingly cave to it. We recognize the ideal of Eden, the future glory of heaven, the original intention in creation, and we resist sin and fight to reclaim what is good, right, and beautiful. In your marriage, the roles that are distorted, you fight to embrace what God says is good, right, and beautiful. Women, you fight not to usurp your husband's authority, but to lovingly obey the scriptures and submit to him. Husbands, you, you fight not to lord your authority over your wife, but to love your wife and cherish her and nourish her and nurture her. You fight to do it God's way. You fight to embrace God's ideal of masculinity and femininity, not the world's. You work hard. You raise your children, as Paul says, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, not provoking them to anger husbands. You pull the weeds and you extend the garden, metaphorically speaking. You show Christ in your work ethic, in your home, in your integrity, and in your restraint and self-control, and your identity in Christ. We can experience God's blessing in spite of God's judgment and the curse of sin. But here's the reality. We can't do this on our own. This is not about us just muscling our way through this. That's why lastly and most importantly, we must rest in the redemption of Jesus. You can't just be this kind of person. You can't reverse the curse. 
you can't undo the effects of the fall. You're not strong enough or powerful enough to undo the new fallen nature of humanity. And, and, and in fact, any attempt to do so, apart from the power of God, will land you in miserable failure. It will break you even more than you're already broken. You are not designed to fix yourself. And this passage, it actually points us to the rest that we and all of creation can actually find in the redemption that will be brought about by Jesus. As, as we groan inwardly, and as creation groans to be, to be set right and made right, as it cries out, something's broken, I'm broken, the world is broken, it cries out for a Savior. It cries out to somebody who's outside of us, who has the power to fix all of this. And this passage actually is incredible in how it points us to the one who will redeem all things. Remember Genesis 3.15, there, there is someone who's going to come, born of the woman. See, one of those painful births promised will produce the Savior, the Redeemer of not only humanity, but the entire cosmos. The greatest mercy of God is seen, listen, not in God alleviating our punishment. Sometimes we think like, God, if you just take away the punishment, move the punishment off to the side, that's not the greatest mercy of God. You see, the greatest mercy of God is His willingness to absorb the punishment for us. He takes the full curse of the punishment of our sin on Himself at Calvary, which is why Adam and Eve were not cursed. Did you catch that? I mean, did sin bring pain in childbirth? No pain is equal to that of Jesus who labored in pain in order that He might bring forth many children into glory. Did sin bring conflict? Jesus endured even greater conflict of sinners against Himself for our salvation. Did sin bring toil in work, thorns and thistles, sweat? Jesus was crowned with thorns. He toiled in the garden with great drops of blood sweating from his body. Did sin bring sorrow and death? Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus, according to the Scriptures, tasted death for everyone. Did sin bring ruin on the world? For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The call of the Scripture is to rest in Him. So how do I do that? You trust in Him. You trust in His finished work, as we saw in the waters of baptism. You believe in Him. You believe that only true joy can come from Him, that your sins are real and they must be paid for. He must take the curse for you. He must be judged in your place. And you believe that He rose from the grave to conquer sin and death so that you can be brought from death to life. Jesus took our curse, as Paul says in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse so that we might be set free to live to God through Him. Listen, the temporary pain of this world is pointing us to the eternal pleasures of the world to come. Only Jesus can absorb the judgment of God 
and overcome the grave. Only Jesus can reverse the curse and make all things new. Only Jesus can satisfy your dry and weary soul. Trade Jesus for the world, and you will never be satisfied. Trade the world for Jesus, and you will never be disappointed.